Welcome each and every one of you uh, here to Good Shepherd. It's a blessing to be with you all and to be able to to be here today. So this is this is this is good. Um, our our Bible passage this morning is uh, from Psalm 59. Uh, Psalm 59. You'll find it um, on page 477 in the church Bibles there. Uh, 477. Um, <clears throat> Psalm 59. Um, I'll be reading uh, the psalm and then uh, preaching this psalm. And this is one of the psalms. There are probably um, a dozen to 15 psalms. And then there are a few other places, actually in the New Testament, interestingly, um, where there are cries of God's people uh, regarding the wickedness that is around them. Uh, the, the language that we often use would be the imprecatory psalms. So a prayer of imprecation. And so um, here specifically, uh, the psalm writer, David, King David, is asking, praying, pleading with God uh, to pour out his wrath upon uh, the enemies of the Lord. And so this is... This is uh, it's a good psalm for us to become acquainted with, and these kinds of psalms of prayers are, are good to become acquainted with. Uh, we all have uh, questions about the matter of judgment. We all have questions about uh, accountability. Um, we, we have questions about evil and wickedness in the world. And will there be justice? Will there be um, the accountability to, to be demonstrated. Um, this, is, this is something that is on all of our minds, and we, we wrestle with these questions, and what's the Christian's role with this? And so uh, we're going to be looking at that topic here this morning from this psalm. So uh, we'll, we'll pray together in just a moment, but even as I preach, you pray for me that uh, uh, this will be helpful and clear. This is a brand new psalm for me, so it was I was working on it throughout the week, and um, it's, it's, good, it's a good lesson for me as well to take part in and to learn from. This is Psalm 59. Uh, the, the title up at the top have been handed to us, and so we'll read this title as well. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a mictem, likely a a musical notation of some kind, a note about music. A mictum of David, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, <clears throat> they lie in wait for my life, fierce men, Stirp strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me, and see. You, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Selah. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths and with swords in their lips. For who, they think, will hear us? But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. 
Oh, my strength, I will watch for you, for you, O God, are my fortress. My God, in his steadfast love, will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and they growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. This ends the reading of God's word. Uh, Let's ask the Lord to be with us here now in the word of God. Let's pray. Pray together. O Father, we do ask for your strengthening grace to be with us in your word and teach us and minister to us. We thank you for your presence. We're here, O Lord, to learn and to grow in Christ. And so minister to us. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Bible's story of salvation is not merely about the matter of Jesus coming to die on the cross and to bear then in his own body the very wrath of God for our sins, that we might then be saved and eternally brought in to fellowship with God and to have that hope of everlasting life. Now, I want to make sure I trumpet loudly here. That is the central focus of the Bible. But the Bible weaves a vast array of stories together into one thread, and I note a few of them here for us. This vast story that's woven together into one thread about the saving work and the glory of our God, it it would include things like donkeys that talk like men and men who then act like cows. Uh, It includes killing the closest of kin, one brother killing another brother, Cain and Abel. It's showing high exalted honor to a person with disability. It includes a massive flood of worldwide judgment. And then yet there's a mass of humanity preserved, some 5,000 people who are fed to their full satisfaction with two loaves and five fish. It includes the crushing the head of the serpent. It also includes, the storyline in the Bible also includes other snakes that are poisonous snakes uh, and which lead to the death of humans. And now closer to home here in Psalm 59, this story that is included here includes things like the matter of kings of nations who muster an army And that army would be wielding swords for tyranny and high-handed selfishness. And it's all about disorder and wickedness. Even like maybe you remember in the New Testament storyline, when John the Baptist was put in prison, one of the Herods, uh, one of the Herods took part to order that the head of John the Baptist would be brought to him. He was beheaded. Well, David is here in this psalm where we get the opportunity to step inside of his life, and it's King Saul, it's King Saul who is pursuing him. Uh, David, too, his whole life is being woven in to these pages of Scripture 
uh, to help make up what salvation's all about. Salvation includes perspectives about life. Lord, what's life all about? Salvation includes uh, what life is all about when faced with enemies. That's Psalm 59, faced with enemies. And you see here too, God wants us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now to get back into the story of David here for a moment, we're told that the women of the Old Testament living in David's own day, the women of the Old Testament would observe these glorious kings and these glorious exploits, these military exploits that would take place. And they had a song that they began to sing. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. All I'm saying, I want to clue us into the fact that there was a growing sort of animosity taking place between Saul and David in David's life. Remember now, Saul was a head taller. The Bible tells us Saul was a head taller over the men in the day of Samuel and David and Jesse and those Bible characters. He was easy to spot. Saul was easy to spot. He was noticeable. He, he was a good fit to be a king. He was a large man, a tall man. And indeed, he was Israel's first king. And David, he's the runt of Jesse's family. Uh, you remember, uh, Goliath mocked him. Remember that story? Uh, David stood there in the strength of the name of the Lord. Uh, he had that slingshot with him. And that one stone that he took, and he struck the giant, and Goliath fell, and David prevailed. Well, King David of the Old Testament is likely one of the most interesting, uh, stunning, heart-gripping Bible characters that we have. His life, really frankly, at the end of the day, is very checkered. He can be the sweet singer of Israel. He's a songwriter. And he can be the savvy warrior and strategic commander. He pulled down the giant Goliath. We've said that. And then he pulls off different forms of deceit and hypocrisy and lying and hatred and adultery. And yet the Bible calls him a man after God's own heart. Very stunning. Well, with this psalm, we do have to ask, a man after God's own heart. We have to ask, what is biblical justice? We have to ask, what is a biblical view of deliverance from enemies, being people after God's own heart, being those who want to follow Christ and follow in loyalty to the Lord Jesus? What does it mean that God would provide a deliverance from our enemies to rescue his innocent, his own people. What does it mean uh, for God's people to labor and to live under tyranny? I thought about beginning with the stories of Pastor Zeki, that Eritrean pastor that some of us have heard about. He's now an Orthodox Presbyterian minister in Atlanta, but he would tell us story after story when we were there at the youth camp about three weeks ago in the San Antonio area of how he was imprisoned and then put into a shipping container for months and months and months in a shipping container. And of course, the heat of the day and the cold of the night and just hardly anything to eat, just enough to stay alive. But he was a pastor in Eritrea. And there's a gentleman who's worshiped here with his wife. Now they haven't been here lately, but a gentleman who's worshiped here with his wife from Eritrea. And Pastor Zeki ordained that man as a deacon uh, in prison because they were faced with such tyranny. What, what do these questions mean? How are we to live? How are we to live in faith? I want to look at three areas for teaching here this morning. The need that's at hand, the severity that in fact is coming. 
God's judgment on sin and wickedness. And then answers, answers for us, answers how we are to live in the midst of wickedness and tyranny, like even rulers and authorities that would tyrannize the church. Okay, what's the need? The need. Well, the context of the psalm is David's situation in 1 Samuel 19. Saul wants David dead. Remember the scene. There's been that chase scene after chase scene. It's been that cat, cat and mouse game that they've been playing. And Psalm, uh, sorry, 1 Samuel 19 speaks about David being in Saul's palace. Uh, he had been there in Saul's palace, the king's palace, to play that melodious music on his harp to soothe Saul that would calm Saul down. And yet in a rage, in that one scene, Saul throws a spear at him. And then David flees. And in the evening, soon after, Saul sends his men to David's house. And David's wife, the king's daughter, by the way, David's wife discovers the plot that is now against David. There's a plot. Saul has sent his men to David's house. And maybe remember, she goes upstairs in the bedroom and she takes some pillows and other kinds of stuffing things, garments of different kinds, and she stuffs them under the covers and she makes a pillow from some goat's hair, uh, quickly evidently, having it available, stuffing it all together, whatever. And she's going to make this to be a look-alike body that's sleeping there, lying there in the bed. Because evidently, she says, David's been ill, he's upstairs in bed, the men have come to see David, they've come to claim him, to get him, to apprehend him. And so, um, before they go upstairs to see where this figure is, she has let him down the back window of the house, and he escaped. And this is the scene here. David escapes, and there's a balled-up clothing, look-alike figure under the covers. David is spared, Saul is fooled, but David yet remains in anguish. Look at the verses now. Three times in Psalm 59 at verse 1, three times, is this language of deliver me. Deliver me from my enemies, oh my God. Protect me from those who rise up. That's that other word for deliverance. Protect me, watch over me, give me guard. And then again, deliver me from those who work evil. Verse 2, save me from bloodthirsty men. This is the need. Even on down to verse 3, David paints for us a bit more of a vivid picture of what's going on here. They are plotting things. They are conniving about things. They're mustering their ingenuity and innovation to seize him. They lie in wait for my life, verse 3. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. So what's the Bible lesson here now? What's the need? It's his anguish. It's his, the threats that are on his life. It's the fear that he knows. What's also a bit more about the need here? The king, Saul, is using his leverage, his position, his ability and resources that are at his disposal. It is authorities in high places, authorities in high places seeking to show their muscle and their might and their power. And what's going on? There's jealousy and envy and pride. That's on Saul's side. Jealousy, envy, and pride. He's also about maintaining his image before men and society. And Saul and men have this appetite for destruction. It cannot be satisfied. Look at verse 5. 
Uh, David will tell of the need wider than the nation of Israel. Verse 5 goes on to say, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. And you see, Saul has been plotting evil. He has been scheming. Verse 5, Lord, it's these nations. Now, O Lord, spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. What's the Bible lesson about this need? Jesus Christ knows about this particular need that the church is faced with. Our brothers and sisters this very day in places in Africa and places in Latin America, uh, certainly Asia with China. We know the stories coming out of China these days, North Korea. The Lord Jesus Christ knows, knows the needs of his church when faced with such tyranny. How do we know this? Jesus knew about unbelief of certain authorities. Jesus knew about wickedness in certain authorities. Jesus knew about their plots to be wicked even toward him. Listen to some of the, some of the story out of Luke. Our Lord's own storyline of his, of his life here. The assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both the chief priests and the scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. Uh, but he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we have found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Dear congregation of the Lord, know that Christ knows about this particular need. His hand is upon his children. He himself experienced the same forms of the threats and the temptations that go along with those threats. And he knows the wickedness that surrounds the church even in our own day. Let's go on now to severity. What is this severity that we have in view here? What's the severity we're talking about? Is that the wicked would be held accountable. That the wicked would be punished. That's the severity in the passage. That the wicked, in fact, would be punished. In short, we're praying, Lord, bring your severity to bear on sin. Congregation, keep in mind that, that that is what God is going to do at the end of the day. The Bible tells us, Jesus told us himself, that he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And indeed, there will be the severity of his punishment. Those who go to everlasting torment and judgment, for they did not believe him and do that which was pleasing to him. And those he would welcome into everlasting rest and everlasting life to be with him. That's where all of history is going. But you have these intervening stories in the Bible to remind us. We are being reminded that sin and wickedness and the wickedness of men themselves will one day be held, uh, held accountable. 
Now notice what David says here about the severity. Watch the language in these verses. Look at verse 8. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God and his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths and the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Selah. What's the severity here? The Bible does not hold back from such vivid language for us. David uses language here of great emotion, great despair, heart cries of putting away the wicked. Look at verse 13. Consume them in wrath. This punishing of the wicked, it must be done. A few more verses, verses 12 and 13. Cursing and lies they utter. Consume them till they are no more that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. That, that word, God rules over Jacob, is a reference to Israel. He rules over his people. He rules over his covenant people uh, to the very ends of the earth. What are some lessons for us here this morning about severity? Well, severity is here in the passage, and it is just. It is righteous. God has his standards. Our God is above us. Right? That's what the Bible teaches us. Uh, our, our, you know, God, God tells us His ways are not our ways. We think we have standards of love. We think we have standards of justice. And by His grace, we do, you know, we do learn lessons from the Scriptures. But our twisted ways and our deceiving hearts, and certainly our personal vengeance can enter in. But God is just. God is righteous. God's severity includes this very love. He cares for what is right. He cares for what is wrong. He cares for adversity. He cares for tyranny against his people. And God cares for his own name among the nations. That's to say, his own character, his own working, his own standards are to be upheld. And this is even further to point out as a lesson, God is the God who remains true to himself. He punishes evil for lives, those evil lives that are lived in light of his purity and in light of the light of his holiness. And it's a severity um, that is not wasted, which means that he has an eye on the whole world. All of the nations are under his hand. And all of the nations are to be learning these lessons. And friends, may I just have a quick aside. One reason the Bible teaches us that church discipline, when the session, that's to say the elders of a church, when the elders of a church have made a ruling, and we call that a functional judgment, we, 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 how we're going to be treating that person. There's a person in sin. There's a person who is unrepentant in his or her sin. And over a period of time, there's counsel and lessons and teaching, but that person remains resistant. When the elders have come down with a judgment to be rendered about this person, we don't know their soul. We don't know their life before God. But how they're living in their functional day-to-day -day life, they're saying, 
I resist this teaching. I resist this teaching. One reason that that judgment is rendered in a public place in the church publicly, one reason, is so that it will draw fear out of all of us that God is teaching us all a lesson about his standards. That's what you have in 1 Timothy 5.20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. God has an eye on all the nations. God has an eye on all of our lives. God has an eye on the specifics of our culture in which we live in this day. And God has an eye on his church. And he, and he rules with his justice for his glory and for his honor. And we don't always understand that. But that severity is to draw us to the Lord. Is to draw us to the Lord that we might know him and that we might uh, fear him. And even, like I say, in church discipline, Paul instructs Timothy, those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. What are some answers now? What are some answers? We've seen the need, the anguish, the threats at hand for David. We've seen the severity being talked about, what David's praying here about the justice and the punishment and the accountability for those who are wicked in their places. How about some answers? There are two things to point out from the passage. Two things. First of all, there's personal hope here. Personal hope. David's particular plea is about his innocence. Verse 3, they lie and wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. And, O oh Lord, I'm putting this now into the passage. O oh Lord, do you see what's so backwards about this? For no transgression or sin of mine, O oh Lord. For no fault of mine, they run and make ready, awake and come and meet me and see. David is not pleading that he has a thorough, complete, and total righteousness. That comes on the last day when sin is finally purged from our lives. But what he is pleading is that he stands in Christ by faith. He has an innocency in that being in Jesus. He lives for the Lord. That's to say, David knows that he is a sinner. Do you know that the same three words that are used in these verses here in Psalm 59 that he says here, at, verse, at the end of verse 3, no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. There's no fault of mine. Those same three words, transgression and sin of mine and fault of mine, they appear also in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is his psalm of confession of his sin concerning his sin of adultery. So David knows something about his personal sin. So what he's claiming is, Lord, I'm your child. Spare me. Where is my hope, O Lord, in this personal sort of way? David goes to the Lord for hope. Look at verse 16. I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a, ret a refuge in, in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. David rests in the love of God, even though he's filled with anguish. What a, what a hard place to, to be in our lives, right? Love for Christ, love for resting in Him, love in that our hope is in Him. Even though we have anguish, we have turmoil, 
Maybe there's some of you here this morning, you, you know what it is to have someone who, as we say, someone who is looking over, uh, you know, looking over your shoulder all the time, trying to trip you up in your life in some form of, you know, this, this tyrannical spirit and uh, oppressive, oppressive toward you. David says, my hope is in the Lord. My hope is in his love. My hope is that, Lord, you've been a, a, a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Personal hope for David. There's a second area for an answer here as well. David identifies publicly with Israel. And therefore, now here's the point to listen to. And therefore, there's a public accountability about this. This is not personal vengeance. David is not taking personal vengeance by calling down curses upon Saul and his men. David widens out his concern for all of Israel. Look at verse 5 once again. This severe punishment is wrapped around the nation of Israel and her witness. At verse 5, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Look what he says again at verse 13. Consume them till they're no more. Why? That they may know that God rules over Jacob, over Israel, to the ends of the earth. So here's another answer. The Bible would not teach us. The Bible does not teach us to, to, to cry down, to, to make a plea and to cry out to God that there would be a you know, a personal vindictive spirit given to us to, to react out to another person, our enemy. We're not asking for God to give us personal vengeance on this. This is, this is his vengeance, vengeance on his people. That's to say, for the, for the protection of his people. He will say here, consume them in wrath, consume them till they're no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob. Another way of speaking about this lesson of an answer for us is that there's this public identification that God is in fact keeping his eye over his covenant people. And David, David is glued to the covenant here. David is glued to the work of God. David is not, yeah, he's personally involved. I do not want to discount that. He's personally involved in the issue at hand. His life is personally threatened. But David remembers to pray that all the nations would see God's justice. It's not about him in that sense. He's personally involved, but his vengeance is not for his own. It's for his people. This cause is to, is to uphold the work of his covenant dealings with his people. David knew, like Genesis chapter 12, when God told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Genesis chapter 12. Practically, now as we close, what's the Christian response to God's enemies? To our enemies. We're living for the Lord. We're walking with Christ. There are enemies of God who are resistant, hardened in their ways. Number one, Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. That passage, love your enemies, comes right in the section where the sun is shining on the unjust and the rain is falling down on the wicked. God is the God who provides food for all of his creatures. He gives to all life and breath. Is it possible to love enemies? We're to feed them. We're to clothe them. Paul will tell us in Romans 12, if your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not overcome evil with evil, 
but overcome evil with good. How is this possible, Pastor Sumter? How, are we, how can we love our enemies and yet practice this prayer, God, bring your vengeance. God, you bring answers of accountability for the wicked that's in our world and the wicked that's tyrannizing the church. Where we are to pray for God's justice to intervene. We are to pray for his cause. We are to pray for the public stand of God's people, that his name would be feared, God's name. His works in the church would have liberty and freedom. The gospel would be able to spread. Listen to what happened in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, you have similar language here. In Acts chapter 4, the church is praying. And the church is being reminded in prayer about some certain psalms. They're actually rehearsing some psalms in their prayer, using some psalms to inform their prayers. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, listen to these words, and now, Lord, look upon their threats. That's the language of the imprecatory Psalms. Look upon their threats, Lord. Look, do you see what they're doing to us, Lord? The book of Revelation will have that question that many Christians through the ages have asked. Lord, how long? How long will your righteous suffer? That's what they're praying here. They're praying for God's justice. I found this one quote from a Bible author, a Bible teacher this week. Christians must continually seek, Christians must continually seek love and reconciliation and practice long-suffering and forgiveness and kindness. Times will come when justice must be enacted, whether from God directly or through his representatives, in particular the state and judicial system. It's the book called Cry for Justice. Once again, we pray for God's justice to intervene. We pray generally. We do not know specific enemies. You know, the Bible always tells us God always has the last word over every person. We are mere humans. Our judgments, you know, our discernment is, is fallible. Our decision-making is fallible. But we pray generally, Lord, you bring a silencing here. You bring justice here. You bring, Lord, your intervention uh, to bring deliverance for your people and that your own name will be vindicated and upheld. Jesus, our Lord, experienced this very thing. The Bible tells us that while he was still speaking, Judas came. You want to talk about someone who personally had involvement with our Savior? Judas came up with one of the twelve and with him a great crowd and with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And when he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him, Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those uh, who were with Jesus struck, uh, sorry, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant with the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as a, 
I come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me. Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples left him, and he fled. Do you see that Jesus, even though he was personally involved in this tyranny, his arrest, his betrayal, the deception on the part of Judas, he was personally involved. He was also about the scriptures being fulfilled. Also, you have the lesson here. He said, love is what we're to respond to. Treat your enemy with kindness. Put away the sword, Peter. Put away the sword. But listen to this as well. Silencing of the enemy. Silencing of the enemies will come. Justice will come. Again, verse 53 here out of Matthew's gospel. Do you think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? God will send forth on the last day. He will send forth his son back to this world who will be the Lord and God and king and judge. And he will give an account, an accurate account of full justice to the wickedness that is in the earth. And Jesus is our savior in this too. How do we work out our salvation? Lord, I'm here to learn what it means to walk with Christ in the midst of such a threat. He entrusted himself to his father. Why did he entrust himself to his father? Because his father is the one who always judges justly. And we can follow Christ in that as we place our faith in him and walk with him in the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you that your justice is that which is purity of light and purity of holiness. And your justice is all as well as uh, full of love in that you are the one who discriminates righteously between that which is wicked and that which is righteous. Your standards of your high and lofty standards of love of God rules over all. One day, because you love your people, uh, you love the greatness of your own name, for you alone, uh, Lord, can only have that tribute. You can only make that claim because you're the everlasting God. One day, Lord, it will, the wickedness and the sin will all be swallowed up in the victory that, is com that comes through Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would learn these lessons. Uh, help us to pray uh, for the righteous judgment of our God and to silence uh, uh, the wicked, Lord. We pray for conversions in that light, even like Saul, the, the Apostle Paul, persecuting the church and then turned upside down in his life to become a follower of Jesus. Lord, that is our prayer, that yet in the midst of the wickedness, you would silence it by conversions. You would silence it, O Lord, by changing lives toward the gospel, even while it's still yet today. We thank you for these lessons and encourage us, we pray. Most especially, we thank you for Jesus Christ, that in him uh, we live and our, our, our faith is that living, vivid faith to walk with our Savior. Uh, he indeed has done it all for us. We ask in his name. Amen.